The History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week. August 27, 1976. I'm Kalen Jones. Renee Richards has just won the 60th annual La Jolla Tennis Tournament in Southern California. A month later, she makes it to the semifinals of the $60,000 Tennis Week Open in South Orange, New Jersey. At age 41, she's still a tennis player on the rise. And just like so many athletes who reach the top of the amateur game, she wants the challenge of going against the world's best. That means playing in the U.S. Open in Queens, New York. However, the USDA, the United States Tennis Association, now requires her to take a chromosomal test in order to compete, despite never having required any competitors to do so since women began playing in the U.S. Open 89 years earlier. This is because Renee Richards is a trans woman. According to the New York Times, USTA President Stan Malice essentially challenges Renee Richards to sue, refusing to grant her a waiver for taking the test, saying, quote, it would be unfair to others who are taking the test. At the time, transgender women were not allowed to play in women's sports, so she went to a different court. She went to a court of law. I'm prepared to sue them, Richard says at the time, for deprivation of civil rights, the right to earn a livelihood, and equal opportunity. Renee Richards spends the next year battling in a lawsuit as she attempts to play tennis at the highest level, encountering athlete boycotts, outright lies by the media, and hate from a large part of the public. Many still see her lawsuit as a key milestone in the fight for trans athletes' rights, an issue that is still very much being debated among members of the modern media and government. Today, why did the U.S. Open initially decide to keep Renee Richards from competing, only to reverse its decision 11 months later? And how does her landmark court case continue to impact trans athletes and other marginalized groups to this day? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Renee Richards spends the first 40 years of her life seen as someone she isn't. Growing up, Renee is a talented two-sport athlete, goes on to play baseball at Yale, and becomes a medical doctor and Navy captain. Eventually, she has a successful ophthalmology practice. At one point, Renee even breaks the top 20 tennis players in the world among men over the age of 35. She had played men's tennis prior. She was the captain of the men's team at Yale and was a nationally ranked men's tennis player. That's Joanna Harper, author of the 2019 book, Sporting Gender, 
the history, science, and stories of transgender and intersex athletes. She's also a PhD researcher at Loughborough University in England, where she's a visiting fellow for transgender athletic performance. She kind of had an off and on gender transition, but Renee Richards was the, the first transgender athlete of note. In 1975, Renee Richards finally sheds the idea of how the world viewed her. She heads to California for a fresh start, for a chance to introduce everyone to someone she'd already known a long time, herself. At age 41, she introduces the world to Renee, which is French for reborn. And I gave up my practice, my professorship. I left my son back there to visit him only once a month. I left all my friends there to lead a private, anonymous life with a new name in California. And all that blew up in my face in La Jolla. That's the voice of Renee Richards speaking with CBS News in 1976. She declined to speak with us for this episode, preferring not to relive what she refers to as the most traumatic era of her long career, while also noting that, at the age of 87, she feels that she's no longer a contemporary voice in the conversation surrounding gender and athletics. Still, we're revisiting Renee's story today because it remains relevant in both sports and society. Richards mentions La Jolla, California as the place where things changed. Prior to moving to California, friends are encouraging Renee not to play in these public tournaments, believing that she will be recognized. Sure enough, she wins the tournament in La Jolla. But at least one audience member does recognize this tall lefty who appears to be new to the West Coast tennis scene. Shortly after, TV news anchor Richard Carlson, father of future Fox News host Tucker Carlson, and whom the LA Times describes as someone who, quote, prides himself on being a muckraker, publicly reveals that Renee Richards is a trans woman. She moved from New York to California and began to play women's tennis. First, she tried to do it without letting anyone know about her past history, but that didn't last very long. And she very quickly found herself at the the center of attention. A New York Times report even uses what's now outdated words to describe her, saying, quote, Miss Richards is or was either a transsexual or a transvestite, implying that Richards might actually be a man simply dressing up as a woman. Our guest, Joanna Harper, notes that this false yet relatively common assertion has been used throughout history as a fear tactic by members of the press to keep trans women from competing. In the late 70s, when, when Renee was playing, it's if we let Renee play very soon, you know, men will masquerade as, as women, will we'll say they're trans women, and, and will take over women's sports. And it actually goes back even well before Renee Richards. If you go back to the 1930s, it wasn't transgender women, but it was intersex women that uh, were making a, a significant impact. So it's been this persistent myth for 90 years that men are going to masquerade as women for success in in women's sports. And yet, over 90 years of competition around the world, as far as we know, it has never happened. Now a nationally known figure, Richards is invited to participate in a tennis tournament back east, the Mutual Benefit Life Open in South Orange, New Jersey. Tournament chairman Eugene Scott supports Richard's entrance into the tournament, saying, quote, 
I extended the invitation to Dr. Richards as a woman because as a tennis tournament chairman, based on the information afforded to me, I recognize her as a woman. Still, more than 20 female competitors pull out of the tournament in protest. Yet, the boycott seems to strengthen Richards' resolve to continue her tennis career. As she tells ESPN years later, She better not try to play in the U.S. Open. She better not try to play as a woman pro and make a living out of out of tennis as a woman. And uh, she can't do this, she can't do that. Once people tell you you can't do something, then you have to insist that you can. After making it all the way to the semifinals of the tournament in South Orange, Renee Richards decides that she wants to try her hand against the best at the most prominent tournament in America, the U.S. Open. Almost instantly, Renee Richards goes from making small waves in the tennis world to becoming a massive international media phenomenon with some of the sport's biggest stars weighing in. Here's Arthur Ashe a three-time Grand Slam champion who won the U.S. men's singles title in 1968, speaking about Renee Richards at the time. My only comment is that if she cannot play the women's U.S. Open, and she obviously cannot now play the men's U.S. Open because she is legally a woman, then where can she play? And here's the top-ranked women's player in the world at the time, Billie Jean King. I listened to her story and listened to her feelings and her thoughts. I went, oh, she's extraordinary. A human being. And then I went to doctors in the medical uh, field and said, well, is Renee a woman or not? They said, yes, she is. I said, that's all I have to know. So then I went back to the women and said, you guys, we have to let her play. It should be said that while Billie Jean King's comments are clearly met in support of Richards, relying on doctors and medical data in order to confirm someone's personal gender identity is seen today as somewhat problematic. The medical aspects are emphasized, but at one level, the experiences of trans people are seen as clinical and not human. That's Carly Webb, writer and contributor for SB Nation's Outsports.com and host of the Transporter Room podcast. I mean, people get so caught up, you know, gender critical people especially, they get caught up in if this surgery is done or what this hormone level is, this and that. As for Renee... While she has some supporters, others, media members, fans, and competitors, are not as kind. Some publicly protest. Two female players even wear transphobic t-shirts with the phrase, quote, I am a real woman. But beyond public protests, Renee Richards faces the U.S. Open guidelines for entrance to the tournament, which now include a chromosomal test. The first women's U.S. Open is played in 1887, so for nearly nine decades, the tournament is played without any sex determination test other than the phenotype test, or as New York appellate judge Alfred Ascioni would later describe as, quote, observation of primary and secondary sexual characteristics. It isn't until 1976, the year that Richards decides to play, that the U.S. Open suddenly requires a chromosomal test. Her supporters view this as retaliation, a punitive act by the U.S. Open, a test designed specifically to keep Renee Richards and other potential trans competitors out of the tournament. She wanted to play in the U.S. Open, but at the time, it would have required taking what is known as a, a bar body test or a chromosome test, and she declined to do that. And for our listeners, what is the bar body test? 
How would you describe it? Generally speaking, most people either have XX or XY pair of chromosomes, and there are sophisticated karyotypes tests that, that will sequence the genome of cells. But these are, are fairly expensive, fairly complex tests. The bar body test was a test that was invented, I believe, in the 50s by a Canadian researcher. And what he discovered was that the second X chromosome in a cell appeared as a dark splotch or, or body within the cell nucleus. So by staining the cells, you could see this, this dark body that represented the second X chromosome. And this was an easy test that you could just do under a microscope. You could get cells, they, they usually got them from the saliva. They would just take a swab, put the saliva under a microscope, stain it, and, and usually you could see these, these dark bodies that represented the second X chromosome within the cell. Something important to understand here. Gender and sex are not the same thing. Sex is an anatomical term that refers to one's body parts, chromosomes, sex organs, and hormonal makeup. Gender is a term referring to how a person identifies, a social construct based on labels of masculinity and femininity. One can exist on a spectrum in between and even identify as not having a gender. Here's Richards explaining why she refuses to take the bar body test in a 1976 interview on the Robert McNeil Report. I'm unwilling to accept it because I don't think it's a good test for sexuality. Sexuality is many more things than what your sex chromosome pattern is. Uh, socially and legally, your sex chromosome pattern has nothing to do with it. I am a woman. She refused to take the chromosome test. Do you think that was the right decision? Chromosomes are certainly important in differentiating between men and women, but there are any number of chromosome irregularities that can occur. And certainly, once a trans woman has undertaken suppressive hormone therapy, you know, she's going to lose strength, speed, stamina, and there will be many other effects of, of the hormone therapy that will reduce her athletic capabilities. So it, it's not simply a matter of, oh, somebody's XX or somebody's XY. It, it's hard to say for certain exactly how hormone therapy will affect the athletic capabilities of, of, of trans women, but there certainly is going to be a substantial decline in, in these performances. And that was obviously true with Renee as, as well as many trans athletes who followed her. When Richards refuses to take the chromosome test, the USTA denies her the ability to compete in the U.S. Open. But Richards doesn't give up the fight. Instead, she files a lawsuit against the USTA. And on August 16, 1977, just two weeks before the U.S. Open, Judge Ashioni of the New York Appellate Court rules that Renee Richards does not need to take the test. The judge quotes several doctors, including Roberto Granado, the surgeon who performed Richards' affirmation surgery two years prior. 
Granado describes Richards as, quote, anatomically similar to a biological woman who underwent a total hysterectomy and ovariectomy. The focus on Richards' anatomy as the reason she should be allowed to play is a common refrain at this time, as many of the more nuanced elements of gender aren't as well known. The biggest thing with Renee's case is that she argued what was then New York Human Rights Law, which has been updated since then. Ultimately, a judge just said, look, this is now female, and I'm reading the ruling right in front of me here. And at that time, she had to go through what many athletes had to go through. They literally had to go through the type of test where they where she's looked at, they look at her body, and they determine, well, what are we looking at here? Rarely are we as transgender people seen, seen as human beings. And at that one moment in August 1977, Judge Alfred Asioni saw Renee Richards as a human being, at least in a small way. Saw her as a human being that just wants to go out there and play her best tennis. And by rule and by regulation, fought for her right to do so. And I think that that's what we need. I think more it's just a matter of first seeing transgender people as just people. Judge Ashioni also writes that the defendants, the USTA, quote, knowingly instituted the bar body test for the sole purpose of preventing Richards from participating in the tournament. And in one of the most impactful statements for future generations of trans athletes, the court declares that Richards, quote, muscle development, weight, height, and physique fit within the female norm. In essence, the fact that she's transgender does not give her overwhelming advantages against her competitors. Again, here's Renee Richards herself in 1976. Being excluded is that people are afraid that I do have an unfair advantage having been a man. I don't think that this is so. There are many women athletes, tennis players, golfers, track stars who have height, weight, and muscle mass that is much stronger, bigger, or in whatever dimension you would want to measure it, than I. Uh, Betty Stowe from the Netherlands is 6'1 and 160 pounds, taller and heavier than I am. With the same proportion of muscle? With the same proportion of muscle. After the verdict, Richard says, quote, I feel ecstatic. I can't believe it. It's really a vindication of everything I've tried to prove in the last year. Whether I win the tournament doesn't mean anything in the long run. With the lawsuit behind her, Renee Richards goes on to play in the U.S. Open from 1977 to 1981. She ignores the noise, reaching the finals of the U.S. Open in women's doubles alongside Betty Ann Grubb-Stewart in 1977 and making it to the finals of the mixed doubles competition with tennis legend Ellie Nastasi in 1979. She becomes an undeniable trailblazer for trans athletes everywhere. But in the decades since, her role in this movement has actually become less clear. Renee Richards fought to affirm herself as the woman she is and be allowed to be the woman she is on the tennis court. And that piece of important history should not be denied. Now, I will never agree with her on some of the things she said recently, but at the same time, I will never discount her place in history. Hold up. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed. And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Richards versus U.S. Tennis Association becomes a landmark case in the battle for trans athletes competing in the highest level of sports. It was, to the best of my knowledge, the first one in the world of a transgender athlete, transgender woman trying to play in women's sports. So, you know, it, it is rightfully celebrated as a game-changing moment for, for transgender athletes. As Joanna Harper notes, other sports soon feel the effects of this ruling. It wasn't long after. This was in the 80s, and Charlotte Wood was a pretty good golfer. She transitioned and she won a couple of amateur golf tournaments and she was looking to play at a higher level. Wood ultimately decides against continuing the play at the professional level. But in 1987, Frank Hannigan, the executive director for the United States Golf Association at the time, publicly welcomes Wood and other trans competitors to play LPGA tournaments. And according to experts, the precedent set by Richard's 1977 court case becomes the primary legal reason for that acceptance. In fact, Richard's versus U.S. Tennis Association has been cited multiple times in subsequent cases, including a 1978 trial granting someone the right to undergo gender affirmation surgery and a 2005 case regarding the rights of transgender people using public bathrooms. One thing certainly hasn't changed. Trans athletes face massive public scrutiny, particularly when they compete at the highest levels. Just this year, in March 2022, nearly five decades after Renee Richards' debut at the U.S. Open, University of Pennsylvania swimmer Leah Thomas faces protests outside the NCAA Swimming Championships at Georgia Tech. And you can see and feel the tension in this building. It is, uh, there is no doubt about it, Bill. Regardless of what side you're on, there is uh, a lot of tension. Yeah, we mentioned there were protests outside before the preliminary round. Now some have moved inside here before the final. Now, let's understand this. A group of people jumped on a plane in the United Kingdom, flew 4,000 miles to Atlanta, Georgia to pick on one kid. They went to a college swim meet to protest one kid, harass her, and hound her for the entire competition. They literally jumped on planes, caught a flight to do this. Again, that's the voice of Carly Webb, writer and contributor to OutSports and host of the Transporter Room podcast. A collegiate swimmer from a school outside the Power Five, you know, the college football playoff schools, the big schools. And she got more press than the Super Bowl. Leah Thomas got more coverage. That scrutiny level is high. It's insanely high. Despite the distractions, 
Thomas manages to win the 500-yard freestyle competition, becoming the first openly trans athlete to win a Division I championship. Leah Thomas pulling away over the final 150 meters. Had to work for it. She was pushed over the first 350 meters. Thomas wins the NCAA championship. Ended up very close for second. But a significant part of the post-race interview focuses on the story of the protest rather than on Leah Thomas's athletic performance. You've undoubtedly been under the spotlight over the past few months. How have you been dealing with that and reasoning with everything? I try to ignore it as much as I can. I try to focus on my swimming, uh, what I need to do to get ready for my races, and just try to block out everything else. That seems to be par for the course for a successful trans athlete. In terms of my college career and interpersonal interactions, there's a lot of pressure on me. That's Skylar Baylor, the first openly trans swimmer to compete in any sport on an NCAA Division I men's team. He's now a gender literacy and transgender advocate and an educator who started up Lane Changer, an online learning service that educates people on gender and transgender topics. Skylar spoke to us directly about what it's like competing as an openly trans athlete. I felt um, like I was being watched, which I was. It wasn't just a feeling. Um, and I felt like I had to prove something. You know, I had to prove that um, trans people, especially trans masculine folks who people usually consider at a disadvantage, could play and could keep up. Leah Thomas's victory, not simply her participation, extends the debate around trans athletes between fans and media to a highly politicized topic among top representatives in the United States government. After that swim meet, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said the NCAA is, quote, basically taking efforts to destroy women's athletics. You'll hear dangerous rhetoric like this from detractors of the Renee Richards and Leah Thomases of the world, that they're destroying women's sports or perpetuating fraud. If you think Leah Thomas is the, is the primary problem, which I know people have, have said, oh, Leah Thomas is ruining, whatever, whatever, then you haven't been paying attention. This has been going on for a little while. It's been sort of bubbling, I think. I think it's massively different to what it looked like in the 1970s. Um, but there wasn't the same awareness. And we have slowly built an awareness of, of trans people over the past probably like about eight years. Um, and that's awesome, the, the fact that we built more of an awareness. But the problem is we built an awareness without the education. And when we build awareness without education, we actually build ignorance. And that is why I have dedicated what I do to building education, because I have found that to be the primary predictor of whether or not somebody is going to be affirming or, and respectful versus bigoted and unkind, is do they know the facts? Do they actually understand what they're talking about? The thing is, we have a climate right now that's so toxic that, for example, me as a transgender person, you know, my head's on a swivel every day. We've seen this throughout history. That certain people will do things and take it to an nth degree and not care. We've seen what happens throughout human history when a people hate a group of people enough to do really nasty, ugly things to them. I mean, I will say it it very bluntly, and and it's it's a dark truth, but it's it's going to kill kids, and it is already. And I I know that because we've already seen the call rates for places like the Trevor Project and Trans Lifeline increase specifically in the states that have the most amount of anti-trans bills. Um, there's even been research on the psychological well-being of LGBTQ plus kids in states with more LGBTQ plus um, hatred and discriminatory legislative bills. We know that when kids don't feel safe, 
they start to um, decrease in their mental well-being, right? That's not a new concept. The NCAA policy on transgender participation, effective as of the 2022 winter season, quote, calls for the transgender participation for each sport to be determined by the policy for the national governing body of that sport, subject to ongoing review and recommendation. Essentially, each sport can make its own decision regarding the inclusion of trans athletes, something that can be problematic for a number of reasons. The initial NCAA policy back in 2011 involved had transgender student athletes as part of the process. They were in the room when these initial policies were made, in addition to a lot of cisgender people who studied the issues, people like the great Pat Griffin, who basically wrote the book on a lot of this inclusion. But where was the same level of consensus? In elite sport, you're not seeing a lot of that. As of this episode, 18 states have agreed the laws which ban or limit trans students from participating in sports consistent with their gender identity, with even more states reportedly considering similar legislation. Trans people make up 1% of the population. We are not possibly the enemy, right? Every single state that has banned trans kids, they've actually, I've read the numbers, 70 plus thousand athletes in Utah, for example, 75,000 athletes high school in Utah, four are trans. These are the children that everybody is panicking about, right? And then Leah, even if you would like to say that Leah is dominating, which I can tell you she's not, but let's pretend. One, one athlete, <laughs> singular, uno. <laughs> the NCAA's official website notes that its policy is influenced by the IOC, which states, the credibility of competitive sport relies on a level playing field where no athlete has an unfair and disproportionate advantage over the rest. This idea of credibility speciously focuses on protecting sport, but denies and discredits trans athletes' knowledge of their own selves. Skylar Baylor likened it to confirming that he's Korean-American, only for someone to argue that he isn't Korean-American. Everybody experiences that ridiculousness, right? Um, in the same way that if, you know, you're supposed to, you tell me what your ancestry is, I'm not going to tell you no, right? Like, that's obvious. But if I say, oh, well, I'm a man, there are many people that will tell me, no, I'm wrong. And I want people to understand that we should have the same level of outrage, of ridiculousness that we experience in that moment, because who are you to tell me what my identity is? Are you inside of my head? Do you know who I am? No. But people believe because of the system of oppression that we've created around the gender binary um, that and the, the absolutism that people are taught about biological sex, um, we then think that it's some sort of like immutable thing when the reality is that it's actually our identities and that's the point of an identity. Um, so I do think that there's a problem with trying to grade the credibility of somebody else's identity. Additionally, this concept of disproportionate advantage seems to be brought up consistently alongside an implication that trans athletes will one day overtake sports. This idea that, that trans women are about to take over women's sports. It's simply not true. There are 200,000 women competing every year in, in NCAA sports. Um, transgender people make up roughly 1% of the population. And, and, and so you'd think with equal representation by population, you'd be seeing 1,000, 2,000 trans women competing every year in NCAA sports. We don't know the exact number of trans women competing in the women's category, but but it's small. I've talked to people 
I've, I've looked at some numbers, it's probably fewer than 50, definitely fewer than 100, and, and there should be 1,000, 2,000. So 11 years after the NCAA first allowed trans women into NCAA sports, trans women aren't taking over. Trans women are still hugely underrepresented. The number of transgender women who play, who've played in a WTA event since Renee Richards, zero. And that's an important thing to realize that this whole idea is centered around something that those who are in opposition, those who are standing for exclusion, claim there's going to be, but it's never happened. The domination that they believe is coming is a completely unbased fear. We haven't had another transgender woman play professional tennis since Renee Richards retired in 1981. It's now 2022. It's been 41 years since you had a transgender participant in an ATP tournament. Yes, it's been that long. Richards versus U.S. Tennis Association establishes a precedent in 1977 that legally speaking, trans women do not have such an athletic advantage that they should be barred from competing. However, Richards changes her opinion on whether she should have been allowed to play sports, noting in a 2012 book that if she'd had her surgery at 22 instead of her 40s, that she would have dominated the women's tennis tour, that no one, quote, would have come close to me. She herself said that she reconsidered her position on trans women playing in sports. Does that affect how you feel about it or how other people's maybe feel about her legacy? Yeah, of course it will affect how people think about her legacy. But regardless of, of what she decided later in life, she showed a lot of will, not just to play tennis, but, but to overcome obstacles. And, you know, that is her main legacy that, that she will always have, is that, is that she fought for her right to, to participate in, in women's sports and, and, and she won and, and she competed and, and um, she will always be the first. Now I myself, even with the statements that Renee has made, it's no secret Renee and I do not agree on many issues. But when Renee stood up for herself, when she stood up for a right to compete, stood up for an opportunity to compete, that happened, those things are fact, that's the history now. She had to fight for the opportunity. And even as I disagree with her today, I'm glad she took on that fight then. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week, 1989. Pete Rose receives a lifetime ban from Major League Baseball for gambling on games while playing for the Cincinnati Reds. And 1875. Matthew Webb makes the first unassisted swim across the English Channel in 21 hours and 45 minutes. If you know of any other stories from global sports history you'd like us to cover on this podcast, or if you'd just like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com. Special thanks to our guests, Joanna Harper, PhD researcher in transgender athletic performance at Loughborough University, 
author of the 2019 book, Sporting Gender, The History, Science, and Stories of Transgender and Intersex Athletes. Skylar Baylor, a gender literacy and transgender advocate and educator, and creator of Lane Changer, an online gender literacy learning series. And Carly Webb, writer and contributor for SB Nation's Outsports.com and host of the Transporter Room podcast. This episode was produced by David Ingbert. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by the Poglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. 